On this episode of the Culture Pop Podcast, actress Kate Bosworth joins us to talk about her career and her new movie, The Immaculate Rule. Plus, what has made Better Call Saul such a legendary show as we get ready for the series finale? And speaking of Better Call Saul, creator Vince Gilligan working on a new series that will have a Twilight Zone vibe. All that is coming up. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at SteveMason.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review. The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue Baloo, how you feeling? How's it going? It's Monday morning as we're recording this. It is actually the day of the finale, the series finale of Better Call Saul, which I am so excited about. Now, I know you've watched. Are you caught up on it? I'm caught up. Oh, that uh, penultimate episode, the second to last episode last week. I mean... How great is Rhea Seahorn? How great is she? She's amazing. And if she doesn't win an Emmy, then there should be like... An investigation. A total investigation because she is phenomenal. Yeah, that was her episode. That was her episode. You know what I like is that each of the big players has gotten their episode, like Patrick Fabian, who played Howard Hamlin. Oh, what an unbelievable last episode. Uh, Michael Mando, who plays Nacho. Unbelievable mm-hmm. final episode. Lalo Salamanca, Tony Dalton. Unbelievable final. I mean, they're finding a way to cap off each storyline in a really, really cool way. The addition of Carol Burnett during this final sequence is so <sighs> great, isn't it? Oh, it's so great. And I love that it's shot in black and white. I mean, they don't miss a trick. And, you know, I was actually talking last night to people about the show. In my opinion, it is the greatest shot show Mm. I think I've ever seen on television Mm -hmm. and maybe even in film. His, their, their ability to, um, to capture these like establishing shots in every scene. It's so unique and the close-ups, like you kind of don't know what you're looking at sometimes. Right. right. Or they'll pick And then like later a, like it becomes really important. Of, yeah. Yes. Or like, you know, just to establish like, you know, being in a in like a like a desert area and like a close-up, and then you see like a, a lizard or, or, a or just the way they the shots are framed so beautifully. And um it's it's just perfect. Yeah, it's one of my 10. Now, I've watched a lot of TV in the last year, right? But the most satisfying TV viewing I've had is Better Call Saul. It's just, it's great to look at. The story's unbelievable. Uh, I will be very sad. And Vince Gilligan has come out and said, that's it for the Breaking Bad universe. I will I will be very disappointed that the Breaking Bad universe 
has hit its end because it's been great between Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. It's been an unbelievable run for Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould and all those guys. Well, speaking of Vince Gilligan, he's working on a new series mm. that is going to that's com- that's being compared to the Twilight Zone. Nice. And I cannot wait to see this because I just want to see everything that he does. So here's an interesting story. Vince Gilligan was a writer producer on the X-Files. So this is an area where he's got experience and he directed an episode starring Brian Cranston and Brian played a guy who had a bomb in his head that was like ticking Mm -hmm. and they had to go a certain speed. I think that's what it was. They had to go a certain speed or the Mm -hmm. bomb was going to go off. Mm -hmm. So that was Vince's episode. That's how Brian Cranston became Walter White. It's Vince Gilligan was so impressed with Brian during the making of that one episode of the X-Files that he remembered Brian's name and called him back for uh, for Breaking Bad. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree with you. The Twilight Zone, I, I love that stuff. I love those those little sort of vignette, thing, you know, Rod Serling. I, I hope it's I hope it's that. But Vince Gilligan is a genius. I I, I will absolutely watch it and wait for it. Yeah, they say that um, it's going to focus on exploring the human condition in an unexpected, surprising way. Nice. So I think it kind of takes place in present time. I don't think it's like a Black Mirror kind of thing. Right. You know, so. Which is a great show. Black Mirror is a great show. Very creepy. Yeah, it's very, very creepy. creepy. Intense. Intense. Um, and speaking of Black Mirror. Yes. Oh, I'm, I, I'm just I'm just giving you these lead ins. You are. You're You're teeing me up. So I don't know if you heard of this, but elect, um, Amazon, they've been experimenting with this new feature that will allow, um, Alexa voice, uh, the Alexa voice to mimic the voice of other people, oh. including voices of people who have died. Wow. So they previewed, um, this one video where a boy is asking Alexa, to read a bedtime story using his grandmother's voice. Oh. So my question to you, um, cool or creepy? Okay. So this is an interesting question because we came across something, and I'll just tie this in, uh, because of artificial intelligence, it is believed that Vin Scully said so much stuff during the course of his career that with AI, Vin could actually still do a game uh, using using artificial intelligence. So it's kind of the same thing, right? It's the same. And you know what? I actually like this. I mean, this little kid probably never met his grandmother, uh, doesn't know necessarily his whole family lineage. And the idea that you can give him just a little taste of what grandmother was like is actually pretty cool in my book. Yeah. Oh yeah, I knew I knew you were going to go the other way. I knew it. No, I mean I could I could see cuz I I actually asked some friends who have children. Mm-hmm. Um what they thought of it and they thought it was really cool and sweet and you know. And look, you know, I lost my you know, I never met my parents um my mother's uh parents. Okay. So, um 
there's definitely a part of me that w- would have thought, wow, you know, like it would have been cool to have known them somehow. Yeah, you know, right. Except, except for pictures, you know? Yeah. Um, but there so you're, something. so you're yes. I'm, I'm, I'm yes, but, but then they were saying that, you know, of course, with everything that's wonderful, there is something like that horrible that could come from it. Like so, what? Well, people, how, you know, I mean, I guess they're doing it now with deep fakes, you know, yeah, how, right. how they're, you know, taking the voice and using it for, for evil. Yeah. Deep fakes um, are scary. Yeah. That, that kind of stuff is scary, but I do, but I do agree. And I do think, although I, I do get creeped out by a lot of this stuff, I think in this instance, it would be a really, really lovely thing for, for a kid. You know, my grandmother Rose Santa Cruz from Altoona, Pennsylvania on 6th Avenue. I would love to be able to uh, have her read me a story. And you know what she would do at the end of it? She'd <laughs> tell me, boy, you've gained weight. <laughs> That's the way my grandmother was. Even when I had like, was really thin when I went to see my grandmother, she'd still like pinch a little fat around my belly and say, oh, middle-aged spread. It's like, <laughs> it's like that would be my grandmother at the end of reading a story. And by the way, you've really picked up some weight. <laughs> well, that would be kind of fun if they kind of keyed into, um, you know, specifics about the person yes. to make it, to make it more personal than just hearing the voice. Now, what do you think of the idea of a Vin Scully game using artificial intelligence? Well, I, I think it would be actually cool because yes. I, 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 I miss him. Yes. And when I hear, um, you know, cause they still use his voice for promos and it's things like time that. time for Dodger baseball. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, obviously they were, they were using it, you know, they, they just kept using it even though he wasn't doing it anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and now that he's gone, um, I mean, he's my all time favorite. I mean, nobody did it better. Yeah. So, see, I would love for a new generation or every generation to hear what Vin Scully sounded like. Cause at some point, I mean, you're, we're, we're older. Um, you know, we listened to Vin Scully for a huge chunk of our lives. There are a bunch of kids who are like, you know, in five years, they'll have never heard Vin Scully. So if you can present a game, at least that new generation will know what we loved so much about Vin. So I, I am, I'm in favor of that as a concept, just because you get to introduce Vin to a new generation of fans. Yeah. I mean, nobody painted pictures as vivid as he did. And, and I went after he had passed away. I had posted something about my favorite Vinism. Yes. Um, when he, it was at Dodger Stadium and the sun was setting and he likened the, the, the glow of the sun to the eve of the Tet offensive. Oh man. It's like whoever, who else would ever have have had would would have put that together? I mean, I learned about during a course of one game, D Day from Vince Scully, and during the course of the game, he had he had basically told the story of D Day. I mean, it's it, nobody ever would even attempt what Vince Scully did today. It's so unusual, so rare, so special. Nobody can ever match it, ever, ever. 
Right. And it never seemed forced. It never seemed contrived like a comedian friend of mine. We're always joking about how announcers sometimes how they try to slip things in, you know, to make it relevant to what's going on in the game. And they would, one of them was talking about um, how some players like father had died and it was like an, it was like something like and his father died last week oh two and one on the batter <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that's rough that's rough but the other thing i love is that vin never kept a line in his pocket so you know what i'm talking about like for example jim nance we always make fun of jim nance because he does the ncaa tournament and i know he's got a canned line for the end of it like i remember John Wall. There's a great wall in Kentucky. His name is John Wall, though, in Kentucky. So he's got these lines all queued up. Whereas Vin, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. He didn't write that down in advance. He didn't plan that line. That just, that just came to his brilliant mind. Mm -hmm. So yeah, nobody, nobody in that book. And you're right. Canned lines are terrible. All right, so we got a really big guest today, Sue. Big guest. Uh, our guest today got her big break with the surfer movie Blue Crush. She has gone on to become one of the busiest actresses in Hollywood with movies like 21, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, Superman Returns, Wonderland, and her IMDb page goes on and on. Her new movie is called The Immaculate Room, co-starring Emil Hirsch. It is in theaters now. Kate Bosworth joins us. Kate, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So The Immaculate Room, this great psychological thriller, young couple tries to stay in a confined space for 50 days, a five million bucks up for grabs. It's you, it's Emil Hirsch, and it is this room, this immaculate room. What do you think of the concept when you first heard it? Well, you know, we shot this kind of right... Um, at the height of the pandemic. So in a bizarre way, it kind of felt like minus the $5 million reward, it felt like, you know, art imitating life. I think for a lot of people, you know, being like st stuck in one room, you know, with your partner um, and uh, kind of trying to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was kind of strange. It was, it was the first job that I did in LA. Um, where, you know, it, there was just so many kind of um, health concerns and, you know, we were shielded and masked and there were groups A, B, C that could, you know, couldn't co-mingle at the same time mm -hmm. on set. So there, it was just like a very um, coordinated, uh, it was the first time that I had, I had been a part of a set that felt that kind of, you know, COVID concern coordinated. Um but once we got the hang of that, it was an incredibly um, intimate experience, actually, because, you know, the movie does really follow myself and Emil um, almost throughout the entire movie. And then there's a wonderful appearance from Ashley Green, who I love very much. And she kind of pops in and, and has this like wonderful, um, you know, moment in, in the movie. Um, but it was it was kind of like Emil and I were just left to um create these characters and uh you know without a lot of fanfare which which in many ways when you're creating something very character driven can feel a lot better you know because you you don't have people fussing around because they're not able to you know it's just, as an actor you're 
you constantly have like people in your face and checking your hair and makeup and your wardrobe. And I think throughout COVID, there was a lot less of that because mm-hmm. it was just kind of um, would be more of a compromised situation. So people kind of left us alone. And so Emil and I were just, you know, doing our thing in this big white immaculate room. And Mukunda, the filmmaker who's South African and just so wonderful. He had all of his cameras. Um, he's done a lot of commercial work, a lot of music video work. And he had all of his cameras on like these on wheels pretty much. And he was just like wheel them around this big white room. And it just allowed for a lot of fluidity and a lot of um, creative space for Emil and I to move without being locked into positions and um, feel as free as possible within this. So artistically, it was really, really wonderful. So I wanted to ask you, hi, Kate, it's Sue. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was the backstory with your relationship? Like how long had you guys been together before you embarked on this experiment? Yeah, they'd been together like a couple of years. And I think that they had hit that sort of make or break break point, which is, you know, are we going to be taking next steps, important next steps? And I think my character's name is Kate as well in the movie. Um, And I think Kate even alludes to, you know, getting married or, you know, taking those next steps within the first five minutes of the movie. So you, you get that sense of, what are we doing here kind of kind of moment and i think that you know they they decide to to embark on this um you know very challenging but at first it probably is seemingly kind of fun for them um you know opportunity to you know stay in this room and and you know win the money i think first of all is probably about wanting to get a really great cash prize but I think it's probably also to sort of see like what, you know, where are they in their relationship? You know, how, how can they, you know, overcome what they had been dealing with, which is whatever is a commitment issue. Mikey, uh, Emil's character in the movie is an artist and he's just a little bit more lax and go with the flow. And Kate is very A-type and structured. And, you know, I think that they just have differences that they need to work out. So you know, I'd say they've been together a couple of years. There's definitely history there, but there's also a lot that they don't know about each other. And I think that like those types of secrets that, um, you know, couples can withhold from one another is the, the sort of sensitive, um, the sensitive buttons that the room really plays on uh, psychologically throughout their stay. And you see both of the characters just become incredibly unraveled throughout the entire movie. And, you know, you sort of wonder, like, are they going to come together? Are they going to be pulled apart? How are they going to survive this? Was it was there ever a conversation between the two of you, as far as your characters, like who was maybe more into it than the other? Um, and- you know, we honestly, Sue, like Emil and I, it was so like he arrived and we started shooting like within five mm. minutes. Mm. <laughs> so mm. it was kind <laughs> of like a you know experiment in itself, but but. You know, Emil is such a brilliant actor and he, it's like impossible for him to give a false beat. He's just such an honest, um, he's such an honest actor. And so to work with him is to also remain in a place of utter honesty. And 
you know, so I had, you know, I had done my, my work prior, he had done his work prior. And I think just knowing each other really well, like having that history, like I, I felt totally comfortable with him and messing around with him, teasing him. You know, we, we didn't go off page that much, but again, it was such a creatively sort of free space that Makunda would allow us to just kind of like do what we we wanted to do, you know, once he'd gotten what he wanted to get. And, um, Emil and I just have, I think a really, really good energy together. Um, and have, and I think there's just a lot of trust. And I think when you have that and it's a real character driven piece, it's, you kind of, no matter how many times you rehearse or how many things you've discussed, sometimes just that like real organic authenticity between people is what, what matters most. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent a week off the grid last year. I went to Costa Rica. There was like a thermal river. There's no cell phone, no laptop, no TV, just books and quiet. And I'm telling you, it was hard. Uh, it was hard. The obvious question is here, could you do it? Could you stay in that room for 50 days? No TV, no phone, no internet, all that stuff. Could you do it? You know, it's funny. I, I actually love going off the grid. I like to, to the idea of having no TV, no phone, no phone, no internet is like my idea of absolute heaven. <laughs> so <laughs> that part I can do. Um, the, I think the difficulty would be the thing I'd really need, honestly, is like, a bunch of very good books because I'm such a reader. And if I have, like I always say, you know, if I were on a deserted island, but I had like a library of the best books, I'd be, and, and obviously food, I'd be fine for a very, very long time, mm. isolated. Um, but I have to say, I think Emil and I initially, you know, came into this room very much like Kate and Mikey and thought, oh, this is cool. This is going to be so fun. And we were all optimistic and excited. And you know, even by, I can't even remember how many shooting days the movie was, but it, it certainly wasn't 50. It was, it was at least half of that. And by the end, it was like maddening. And we were able to go home and, you know, see other people and just to come back to this like same white space and like, you know, the same costume. It's like, it does become, you know, crazy making. So I don't know. I, I could definitely do without the technology, I'd have to get really, really good with myself in like a, a small space with myself, I think mentally. But um, but it would be tough because it's the thing that you don't um, kind of anticipate so much until you're there is there's like an abrasiveness to the purity of the white. Hmm. So like to be in this white room and it's all controlled by the powers that be that oversee the room, all the lights are controlled by them. Like it's, you know, so you're kind of living in this very artificially created, very white, immaculate room. And it was the, it was that like starkness that I think really started to get to Emil and I at a certain point. You know, it's interesting though, Kate, you, your character, Kate practices Mm -hmm. meditation. Yeah. You, practice meditation if i if i mm-hmm. have my my facts right uh you you do yeah yeah so so i just total aside here i am a i i like to think of myself as a meditator but i have mm-hmm. so much trouble sitting down every day and making myself do it uh kate obviously did it in the movie how how do you do it in real life well to be honest i i was for many years a self-professed failure at meditating you know i <laughs> I've tried several times throughout my life and just thought, oh, I'm just not good at this. I'm, 
I, I'm similar to Kate in that I have, um, you know, more A type tendencies and, you know, certainly like a compulsively overthinking brain. And, um, and, and, and I just found it really difficult to, you know, kind of join the idea of meditating for me, which was, you know, this, this story of like sitting in a field and like having total silence and finding this is like perfect Zen, you know? And, and then what happened was, uh, again, around the beginning of the meditation, a really dear friend of mine who specializes in health and wellness, her name's Stephanie Watson, give her a little shout out. Um, she gave her friends all uh, a month long challenge. And most of the people I think got physical challenges and I'm a pretty physical athletic person. And to, to her, you know, uh, to her credit, she, she said, I'm physical things are not going to be hard for you. She said, I'm going to challenge you to a month 30 days straight of meditating. And mm. I thought, oh my God, this girl knows me well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, it was sort of like confronting my, my nightmare. But I ended up researching um, different apps and I discovered one called 10% Happier. Um, and I remember hearing about it a, a little bit, but it's essentially it's, it's uh, promoted as like, you know, a meditation app for skeptics. And I thought, oh, that's that sounds like me. So I gave it a try. And it has literally been a complete game changer for me. Um, They have some of the best meditating meditation teachers um, who like lead you through. They start with the basics. And it really, you you start to learn that it's, um, you know, I I realized that my narrative of like sitting in a field and finding perfect Zen doesn't exist, uh, you know, at all. And it's, it's, the, it's the challenge in the beginning again, and um, the sort of relationship that you have with your own mind and, and understanding it a bit more that, um, that for me, I found the real value. And as soon as I started realizing like, oh man, this is like a ninja trick of the mind, I got really addicted to it. <laughs> mm. um, and for me, it's just really helped me create and to put it very simply, it's helps me create a small amount of space in the conversations in the, that I have in the day, whether it's with myself or with other people, with the um, actions that I choose to make. It creates, the practice really helps me create a small space between the difference of responding versus reacting. Mm-hmm. And like once you really understand the difference between a knee-jerk reaction, which most, myself included, like most people do from like every single day, moment to moment, when you start to realize, oh, but there's a choice of response and the small space of response. And that's what meditation's really taught me that's changed my life. Hmm. Yeah, it's very, it's very grounding. I started doing TM um, probably around six years ago. Wow. And when I, when I first started, um, it was twice a day. And then it just became very challenging with work. And, you know, mm-hmm. then I was doing it like, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. And it's like, uh, and then I felt a little disjointed. But, um, but I, I find, and, and I guess having a mantra too, because I just doing meditation was something that I was never very good at as well. But I mm-hmm. find that when you're connecting with this mantra, it always brings you back. Like, cause they say you shouldn't, you shouldn't censor where your mind goes. Don't try right. to direct the meditation. So if you're feeling a certain way or certain things come into your head, let them come in. But right. if, but, but to ground you to go, you know, just to always go back to the mantra. But mm-hmm. one thing that I wanted to say about the name of the film, it's so perfect that they call it the Immaculate Room because 
emotionally, it's so messy on the inside. You know, Mm -hmm. it's white on the outside, but your lives were, you know, there was a lot of mess there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, it's just, it's such just, just a a, a perfect contradiction. Yeah. My goodness. I mean, by the end of them, I mean, Emil and I were just by the end of the experience and, you know, it was, it, it was, it was such an intensive experience. Um, you know, it's, you start with this like very immaculate stark, stark room. And by the end, it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't look like the same room that we walked in on. And I don't want to give too much away, but you're yeah. right. The, the metaphorical, you know, the metaphorical sort of psychological mess certainly starts to, you know, physically manifest in the room in many different ways. And it's just, you know, it, it's the, the room is designed to psychologically challenge these characters as much as possible. And, um, you know, it's, it's just an absolute, like, um, I want to say head fuck, but I feel like terrible saying that because I don't know if I can curse on your show, but it's like, it really is. You should really say like, mind fuck. Mind fuck. It is though. <laughs> it's, it really is. There's like no other way to like describe it like, <laughs> other than saying that. And like these, I think these characters just had, um, just did, hadn't anticipated how, how very deeply the room plays on their secrets and their shame and what they've been withholded from each other, withheld from each other and from what they've withheld from them, themselves even. So it's just, it just cracks them wide open. Um, yeah, it's a, it was pretty fascinating to do. And, and I, you know, look, I, I, gosh, I've been doing this for such a long time. There's some films you watch and you're like, Oh yeah, that was okay. There's some films you watch and you think, I don't really love that very much. And then there's some films you watch and you're like, Oh, I really, I'm, I'm on this ride. I dig this. And I'm so like pleased, pleased and proud to say that this film really was the latter. Like I, we, Emil and I both watched it at the Mammoth Film Festival and the film ended up winning Best Picture there, but we were sitting there with an audience and I hadn't seen one of my movies with an audience in such a long time. And people were just going crazy on this ride, you know, and we hadn't really, because it, it was such an intimate experience to participate in, but like when you see it kind of like cracked open to an audience and to to watch and experience how people, you know, uh watched this movie it was just wild truly wild well you know what it it feels to me like it's got reality show written all over it i know it's true it it kind of does you know it's Sue, you're right it kind of does scratch that even though it's obviously a fictional narrative it does scratch that itch that like people seem to be so obsessed with that kind of reality based um big brother sort of observer point of view um it's just, it's, it's, uh, you're right. Messy is, is a great word to describe it. So I want to ask you, you can't do a Kate Bosworth interview without bringing up Blue Crush. Um, I, <laughs> I talked to, I mentioned you on my radio show on ESPN. And the first thing my partner said was Blue Crush, Blue Crush. You know, it did really well when it came out. Then it's gotten bigger uh, yeah. over time because of cable and streaming and all that stuff. And I was reading, you worked really hard at that role. You had trainers careful diet, all that stuff. What was the preparation for that role like? Oh oh my God, this would have to be a whole nother podcast. (laughs) It was, it was, it was the most extreme hands down physical experience that I have ever participated in. Um, And I'm a, 
physical athletic person. You know, I was a show jumper my whole life. I've fallen off of horses like countless times. I've fallen on jumps and defenses off of, you know, in fields on whatever. Like it, I've, I've gone through a lot of physical stuff. Um, and I just, you know, I was 18 years old. We just, the, the 20 year anniversary for the movie, um, movies released just, just spun around. I think it was August 8th. And, um, it was such a time is such a trip. Uh, but what I recall from that, from that experience was, um, uh, well, firstly, I had moved out to LA when I was 18. I graduated high school and moved out to LA and, um, you know, it was 2001. And so the, the parts for the parts for women have certainly gotten better, but you can imagine them, they were sort of few and far between and everyone was sort of going for the best parts as they always do. And, um, and I was a little bit discouraged by the sort of lack of dimension, the lack of um, depth and, and authenticity in the characters that were kind of, you know, I was reading. And then I, and then the script for Blue Crush um, came to me and I, I had never touched a surfboard in my life, but I, wow. I just, um, I had an affinity to this character that I still to this day don't believe I've had one that was that that strong as as it was as strong as it was um, with Amory, and I think a lot of it had to do with the intersection of me being very young and um, having a dream, but also having a lot of fears and doubts and feeling super vulnerable, but also like weirdly very focused and. Um, empowered. So all, all the things that we have, you know, we experience in our lives that are, you know, the sort of spokes of the human experience, but it was really like a, uh, an intersection of what I was experiencing in a very pure way at the time. And I just, I remember auditioning for that, like, gosh, it was pretty rigorous. It was at least like three, four five, six times. I'm not sure how many, but many. Mm. And, um, you know, by the end of the actual like audition process, I remember, you know, Brian Grazer was the main producer on it, um, who you know runs Imagine Entertainment, and John Stockwell was the director. And I remember them, and both of them are surfers and very, very good surfers in mm. in re- in real life. So they they had always started with this intention of like this has to be real. Like we cannot make a movie where you know, real surfers are watching this and laughing, you know, like that was their standard. They, 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 which thank God that was their standard, but they were like, we can't hire this girl, no matter how like clearly connected she is with the character. If she's never surfed in her life, like that's an obvious prerequisite. For yeah, the job. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I was so, so disappointed. I was like heartbroken. And I started of asked like, well, what is their plan? Like, had they found someone else they were going to offer the movie to? And they said, no, we're going to, audition you know a bunch of real surf girls and try and get them to act and I think they were going to take like about three weeks to kind of really comb over the surf world and see what they could come up with and within those three weeks and this is like back in the day so there was no you know cell phone googling at the time it was like me going through the yellow pages and finding surf instructors in Malibu and you know found found someone um and called them up and was like I have to learn to surf in three weeks. Can you teach me? And, um, did he he, laugh? Did he laugh? Oh yeah. He laughed and he was like, yeah, man, but you're going to have to, you know, come every day, man. And it's got to be like eight hours a day at least, man. And like not a day off. And and I was like, no problem. I'm going to do it. Like, you know, I was like, I, anything, I would have done anything for the world. So I really did. I, I drove from, you know, Valley to Malibu every single morning, crack of dawn, 
surfed, you know, all day, um, and, uh, and ended up, you know, learning what I could, which is probably very little at the time, um, in, in three weeks, but, you know, got comfortable enough with like a surfboard and being in the water and feeling, you know, comfortable with a few of the elements that I'd never experienced in that way before. And, um, and the, you know, Brian and, you know, the, the decision makers, you know, said that they would watch me surf. And I swear to God, I thought I was going to have this like epic Anne-Marie, like, you know, coming, like shooting out of the barrel, like arm raised, like finale moment. I really had, I had, I had a whole fantasy, like driving to the, the, you know, surfing audition. I was like, oh, I see it. It's going to be, it was like so epic. And um, I just like ate shit over and over and over and over and over, and over, <laughs> over again. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I, I just, I'm blowing this. This is like, I'm done. Like how embarrassing as well, you know, that this is like what, how this has gone. And I was so devastated. And, uh, you know, they had hired like a neutral surf instructor and for this little like audition part. And I, the story goes that like once I had left, um, you know, le- left the, 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 the audition, they you know, everyone sort of asked the surf instructor, like, what do you, I mean, what do you think? And do you think she can do this? Cause like, remember I was an unknown that leading at potentially leading like a universal big studio, imagine movie, yeah. you know, at the time, three women leading a movie was like very risky. You know, there was like a lot of things that a lot of elements that they were uncertain about. And so they asked the surf instructor, like, do you think she can do this? Do you think she can pull this off? And the surf instructor said, I can tell you like with my hand and my heart, you're not going to find someone more determined. <laughs> yeah. And so it was truly like, I, I, and I, I tell a lot of young artists, the story, like, you know, the determination and the grit and the dedication um, often is sort of like the, the edge. Um, as long as you're aligned with that, you know, that, that, that can often be the edge to, to, to get you where you need to be. Yeah. Um, so you so- you went you went from Blue Crush to Wonderland, which is like mm-hmm. this gritty independent film. Val Kilmer played John Holmes. You played Don Schiller, John Holmes' girlfriend. Uh, she's a real person. Uh, mm-hmm. How research did you do headed into that one? Is it different when it's a real person? Plus, she's an anti-human trafficking advocate now, mm-hmm. which I know is a yeah. cause that you feel very deeply about. Oh, yeah. I love Don. You know, I got to know her um, really well on that movie and you know it's funny it was like you know you work so hard to get to a place where people like believe a believe that you are the surf girl and then you know I did it and then after that I was like thrown like every you know athletic part that I hadn't been considered for before (laughs) and so it was sort of I I never had to be honest I never had like a big strategy of like okay now I'm gonna do an Indian then I'm gonna do a studio movie I didn't really think that it was always more like I always made decisions more instinctually. Um, and this one, like it really did come from that. And then I thought, I really just want to go to the opposite end of the spectrum on where, where I'd just come from and do something like very, um, unexpected. Um, and, and, um, and like character driven in a different way and, and, and like gritty. I remember feeling at the time I was like 19 and I was like, I really want to do something dark and edgy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I like yeah. just come from this like blonde surfy world. And, and there was like a cool underbelly to that surf world, but it, I really wanted to like dive into the gritty deep end. And, um, and, and, and I got to know Dawn so well. And she, she really mentored me through that, um, that process in such a beautiful way. Cause she's, you know, she had such a harrowing 
life experience. I mean, if you watch the movie, like so yeah. much of that is like very true to her life, but she is such an incredible survivor. She's so much strength, but also so much, um, like such a, um, such a huge well of like compassion and empathy and kindness. And, um, and so I just, I, I really wanted to, um, I, I, it was, it was like, I mean, look, when you, when you can have that kind of relationship with someone who you're, you're playing them in real life and they're like opening the safe to their, you know, psychology and their heart source, you know, it's, it's really an incredible um, experience and it brings you very, very close as you can imagine. And she, I mean, she would sit there. I remember this like particular scene where, you know, my character is getting ready to like basically sell herself for drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and uh, um, Val Kilmer who's playing John Holmes was, you know, struggling with it, but getting really controlling and abusive and telling her to like wear more blue eyeshadow, whatever. And um, I remember Dawn, like even like the littlest details, like she's like, I remember we were like, there was an orange grove nearby and I could like smell oranges and like, I mean, like just really crazy, like details like that, where, um, it's, it's a different type of resource. You know what I mean? When you have yeah. someone whispering, whispering things in your ear like that, that really went through, through those yeah. things. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a cool thing, you know, being an actor and, you know, take what, what your takeaway is when the film is over, you know, the fact that you became very active, you know, um, with the the whole human trafficking thing that was, that something that sparked from doing this film? Well, it was so wild because, uh, no, the answer is no, but I, um, I, I, you know, went through many years of a career and then decided, um, my ex-husband and I decided to make a movie about human trafficking and he's, he's Michael's a writer director and he wanted to um, make a, like a fictional narrative that followed one girl from Honduras um, looking for a better life to America. And ultimately it's a movie about human trafficking. Um, and so he and I became very invested in understanding human trafficking, becoming much more educated and aware of it and aligning ourselves with different organizations that like every moment of every day are on the front lines of this issue. And so I was introduced to a, um, an organization called cast LA, which is coalition against slavery and uh, trafficking. And like, lo and behold, I had no idea, but Don Schiller is, uh, incredibly involved and a huge, like hugely involved in, in, in cast. And Hmm. so we became, like years later, we kind of talked throughout the years, but sort of sparsely just because of life. And, um, and, and we became reunited again, um, it, 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 you know, many years later with, you know, fighting this, this issue together. So it's kind of amazing how it can, you know, you, you know, on a much more sort of esoteric level, you can kind of step back and think like, wow, you never really know how life is going to twist and turn and bring you back together with people you know, in different ways. Yeah. All right. Last thing for you, I want to circle back to the Immaculate Room. So um, you've done great big movies like Superman Returns, uh, where you get special effects and you've done, uh, we mentioned Blue Crush, you've got the ocean, you've got surfboards, you've got, the interesting thing about Immaculate Room is it's really just you and Emil and, and, <laughs> and, and it's, it's all on, do you feel the pressure of it being all you with no effects and none of that stuff uh, that, that sometimes go along with movies? No. I mean, honestly, I think it's probably the opposite. I don't know. I suppose every actor is, is 
you know, has different types of pressure. I think probably we all feel like an enormous amount of pressure um, on day one. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like it never, I was just talking to my, my boyfriend's an actor as well. And like, he's starting a movie today and, and he was like, God, you never shake that like first day of school <laughs> feeling. And like, no matter how many movies you've done, you're always walking on set and being like, oh God, I hope I can do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. I, think, I, I think the most amount of pressure that I've ever felt is literally every time I start a job and it's that first day, that first take where you just feel like everyone, it's, it's like a level playing field. <laughs> like yeah. everyone's yeah. reduced to the same sort of first day of school feeling. But if I were to sort of pull out and think about like the more macro amounts of pressure I've had in my life, I think, I think the bigger, the bigger, the, the movie, the bigger, the dollar, you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the more, yeah. the, the more pressure that everybody feels it's, it's definitely a different vibe. And so, um, I love being a part of those movies cause it's just, it's, it's like the crazy kind of, you always feel the movie magic, but there was like big crowd scenes and everything orchestrated and working perfectly just to get this one moment is really spectacular to be a part of. Yeah. But I also love, like the Immaculate Room was one of my favorite, all like truly my favorite all-time experiences because it was just so intimate. And you have this, you know, Makunda wasn't like, okay, an action where you feel like, oh my God, I'm a horse running out of the gate. You're just kind of like, whenever you guys want to go, like you just, you go for it. And it's like, you just feel like you, there's perhaps a little bit more space and a little bit more breath, you know, not to take it too much back to meditation, but that kind of like safety, you know what I mean? I'm just yeah. having a space where you're just kind of allowed to take your time and be with one other person and find the the truth in the moment, which is really what you're always chasing, no matter how big or small the movie is. So um, that was like, that was such a pleasurable part of Immaculate Room. Yeah. Well, listen, the movie, as you mentioned, it's the Immaculate Room. It is a really, really cool psychological thriller. Uh, and, and Kate Bosworth uh, stars along with Emile Hirsch. Kate, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate the time a lot. Oh, thanks, guys. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a great interview. And there you have it, our conversation with Kate Bosworth, who was fantastic, I think. Don't you? She was great. And I love that. Could you do it, Sue? Could you be in a room for 50 days with your husband, Tom, with $5 million up for grabs? Could you do what they tried to do in the movie? Absolutely. Oh, God. Me and Juan, absolutely not. Oh, really? Absolutely not. I, there's no way I could do it. I would, I would be out of my mind. I, you know, you can give me a crayon and I can color on the wall and all that crap, but I'm telling you, I would go nuts in there. I'd be hitting that red button really fast. <laughs> Well, I don't know. $5 million on the line. I, I think I could do it. But my new name from my husband is, um, I'm, I'm started calling him a helicopter husband. Oh, really? Yes. Cause wow. he just, he just hovers. He's, uh, like, is we're, we're, he cleaning up your mess? Is he no, orchestrating like, your day? Is well, he, he's just a micromanager. I never realized what a micromanager he's become. So it's like whenever I'm doing something, he's like right there in my face. Like, you know, no, well, or, or I'll do something and then he'll, he'll like amend it <laughs> or, or him, I'll, like I'll move something and then he'll move it. He'll move it. Yes, like, you know what? It's we are in the so exact same boat because, and here's the thing about it. So, uh, and he, I, he, hopefully he doesn't make it all the way through the Cape Bosworth <laughs> interview, but Juan is very controlling. And, oh. um, and here's the thing. I don't care. 
Like, I don't care about being in control. It is not important to me. Me neither. I go along to get along. Um, And to me, it's much easier that way. I'm like that feather in Forrest Gump. You know, I'm just floating (laughs) around. Well, you know, I I don't, I I guess I really think he misrepresented himself when he was courting me. (laughs) Oh, really? He was like... Unless this is just something that maybe it's just come on later in life and he's becoming, I think it's a phase that's here to stay, unfortunately. Oh, boy. (laughs) Helicopter husband. I like it. I like it. All right. There you have it. There's your Culture Pop Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Culture Pop Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or at stevemason.com. And please leave us a rating and a review. Sue, great seeing you. And we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.